So our uh, message today is titled Covenant Relationships. And we've just completed last week, we completed the first 11 chapters of Genesis, bringing us to Avram. And we learn about the covenant that Avram, that God made with Avram to make out of him a great nation. And ultimately through his line and his seed, we have the Messiah. But just a quick review, um, the first 11 chapters of Genesis <clears throat> are foundational and they're pivotal to many, if not all, of our beliefs and our doctrines. And it's, it's uh, <clears throat> just baffling to me that there are many in the world, including some prominent theologians, who view Genesis as um, allegory or poetry. And they don't take it literally as God's word in describing the beginning of all things. And I just have a few of the doctrines that, that we see in, in uh, Genesis, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We see the doctrine of God. God is seen as the creator of all things. He's the lawgiver. He's also the judge. And finally, he's the savior of mankind. We have the doctrine of man. That God made man in his image. He made them male and female. So in this, God established the natural order of human relationships. We also see the doctrine of sin. That through Adam's sin against God's law, all are under that curse. And in Adam, all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But we also see the doctrine of salvation, the very foundation of the gospel was established in Genesis as we read that through the seed of a woman, we have the prophecy about the Messiah who will save from the curse of sin. And then we have God's covenant with man, that God's love and faithfulness to his people, despite our sinful condition, and that's well established, and we've seen it over and over and over not only through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but throughout Scripture, we see that God is faithful. <clears throat> the covenant then, from the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it continues in our Torah portion this week with Avram. God called Avram out of his father's house to a land that he would show him. And as we read earlier in this portion... God promised to make Avram a great nation. He will be a blessing. God will bless those who bless him, and he will curse those who curse him. And that in all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. And God's only stipulation to receive these blessings was that Avram, lech lecha, go forth as God had commanded the blessings were not dependent on anything else that Avram would or could do. Because as, we, <clears throat> as we've seen, Avram was not perfect. 
he also was under the sin condition of all men. And we also saw some of his downfalls this week, just to name a few. He lied about Sarah being his wife, not once, but twice. And since, that, since Sarai was barren, he took Hagar as his wife in an attempt to fulfill God's promise all by himself. And we saw the devastating effects, effects of that. But in our new covenant portion today, we learned what Avraham's, Avraham's secret was. We read, Even so, Abraham believed in God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham believed in God. Is that any different than what God requires of us today? What does Romans 10.9 tell us? That if you confess with your mouth, Yeshua is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And as we learned last week, though, our ability to believe and to confess Yeshua as Lord comes from God. We do not have that ability within ourselves. God is relational, and he desires relationship with us. And throughout scripture, we see this over and over, but I have some of my favorite passages I'd like to share with you today. The first is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And in Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Wouldn't that be incredible? And in Genesis 6.9, we read, and Noah walked with God. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. That would, that just fills my heart with just joy and gratitude to know that God desires that of us. And one day, one day we will experience that. In Leviticus 26, 12, I will walk among you and, you will, and I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's been God's plan all along, hasn't it? And in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Everything that's happened is all according to God's plan. He draws all of his people to himself. In turn, he has created us to be relational beings. After God created the physical universe, he said, let us make man in our own image. He formed Adam out of the earth and placed him in the garden. God then created Eve because it was not good for man to be alone. 
And the scripture says that he walked with the man in the garden in the cool of the day. What it would have been like to have been there before the fall. Creation was perfect. Adam and Eve were perfect. No sin or corruption. Man was walking with God, panim el panim, face to face. We will never know the fullness of what that experience was like on this side of eternity. But we can look forward to that time when Yeshua returns and restores all things, and we will live with him forever in eternity. Amen. Amen. Adam and Eve, the very first human beings created, formed the first family and the institution God created as the central building block of society in the world. We read in Genesis 2, 23 and 24 that after God brought the woman to the man, Adam said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. I imagine that God himself performed that first marriage ceremony. He was not only their creator, but he was their father. I can imagine him saying to Adam, here's my daughter, love her, honor her, protect her, and give your life for her. I formed her out of you, so she completes you. God then blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over everything that moves on the, on the earth. Through the union of man and woman, God continues his creative process and allows them to fulfill the dominion mandate to multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it. The marriage relationship is a covenant between the man and the woman and is also seen in, in scripture as a picture of Yeshua's relationship with us. He is the bridegroom and we, his body of believers, are his beloved bride. In Ephesians 5, 25 and 27, we see the husband's love for his wife compared to Messiah's love for the body of believers. Husbands, love your wives, just as Messiah also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he, he might present himself to the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And one thing that really st stuck out at me when I read that verse is in the beginning of verse 27. It says, he might present himself the church in all her glory. It's all about what God and Yeshua have done for us. Nothing that we can do to, to be ready. And in the end, or should I say the beginning, the new beginning, the culmination of all things, 
Messiah, Yeshua, our bridegroom, returns for his bride. In Revelation 19, 7 and 8, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In the garden, God designed the family to be the central unit of society and lay the foundation for his work in the world. And this is still God's design for the family today. The family is a microcosm of God's redemptive work in this world. Its framework, we can understand God's relationship with us and see the redemption of his people. The family unit is the center where hospitality, fellowship, discipleship, and evangelism begin. And we see this theme spill out in the larger body of Messiah as we come together as one body, his church, to serve him. And no matter what the composition of our families, we're all part of the family of God. So let's take a closer look at the components of the family. The scriptures described our relationship with God with each other in the context of the family. God reveals himself to us as our father. He is the father of our Lord Yeshua and calls himself our father in heaven. Our father gives us this perfect example of lovingly disciplining our children to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So our role as parents is to train up our children the next generation to love, to obey, and to serve God by sharing his love with others. And as we read in the Via Hafta every week, God gives us an admonition to teach our children diligently and for, him to, and them, for them to follow his commandments. And in Psalm 78 echoes this admonition, Listen, O my people, to my instructions. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell the generations to come the praise of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous deeds that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generations to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God, and not forget the works of God, but to keep his commandments. That's a beautiful... uh, illustration of, of what we as parents, fathers, mothers have with our children. And the, there's a great maxim 
that we read in 3 John 1.4 that says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children are walking in the truth. Amen. Proverbs even gives a blessing to grandparents in chapter 17. Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. Praise God for grandchildren, huh? Amen. Amen. I know, I know there's a few grandparents in here. They can all say amen. So it's not enough to see my children walk in truth, but to see my children's children also walk in truth. As parents, grandparents, even great-grandparents, our commission to train up the next generation for God is never done. And I want to say that our church body demonstrates that to us every day, every week that we're here. Just the love and the, the acceptance that you've shown us from the very beginning. From the day that we walked in that door around 19 years ago, we felt that we were at home. And we're just blown away each week by the love and compassion and acceptance that we have from our, from our church body. So thank you for that. We also have a generational promise that God gives fathers in Exodus 20. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love and keep my commandments. I'd like to switch gears a little bit here and look at one of the vital components of families that the devil in particular is focused on destroying. In our postmodern humanist world we live in today, rejects God and all that he's established. And the scripture tells us that the devil, Satan, goes around like as a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. His purpose is to discredit God and destroy his people just as, as he did with Eve in the garden. His most effective strategy is to tear down the institutions that God has established. And one fundamental institution that Satan attacks relentlessly in history is the family. We see this most clearly in the breakdown of our family and more specifically, the absence of fathers. Just some statistics. We know that around 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. And that divorce rate is slightly higher for couples without children. So we see that contrary to God's word, our culture does not view children as a blessing. And we also see the rise in acceptance of homosexuality and homosexual marriage. And according to the 2022 U.S. Census Bureau data, just under 19 million children, or one in four, live without a biological step or adoptive father at, the, at home. And children who live absent their fathers are, on average, two or three times more likely to use drugs, be poor, to experience educational, health, emotional, behavioral problems, to be victims of child abuse, to engage in criminal behavior, 
than their peers who live with married biological or adoptive parents. And although these statistics can be depressing and fill us with hopelessness, God is faithful. The verses we read earlier in Exodus 20 said that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. That gives me hope. That means that his wrath doesn't last forever. There's hope in the fifth generation. And although that may not be specific generations, that may just be figurative, it does speak of God's faithfulness and his mercy. His wrath does not last forever, and God will and does redeem those sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And he does that through us, through his adoptive sons and daughters. So as we've seen, we as believers are called children of God. In Galatians 4.18, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. And in John 1.3.2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because he, he, we will see him as he is. So children of God bear a strong family resemblance to the Father. And as Father, God loves his children. As such, he requires obedience from them, not only for their good, but also, more importantly, he desires relationship with us. In fact, we show our love to God through our obedience to him. Even Yeshua, God himself, said in John 14, 31, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And all of us know the famous verse, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So through the testimony of our love for God, we bear witness to God's love for us. Yeshua said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. When Yeshua was tested by the Pharisees, one asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love, the Lord, the, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So it's not just enough to say that we love God. Our actions have to demonstrate that love. If you say you love God, but hate your brother, you're a liar, and the love of God is not in you. 1 Corinthians 13, I'm sure you're all familiar with the love chapter. It calls us a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal if we don't have love for one another. 
Doesn't that sound great? We can feed the poor. We can do all manner of good. We can even give ourselves, give our lives. But Paul says if we have not love, it profits us nothing. The scripture also tells us that the world will know that we are his disciples by the love that we show to one another. But in the context of this love chapter, it follows, follows Paul's description of Messiah's body in 1 Corinthians 12. Collectively, we, as families, make up the body of Messiah or his church. Each individual member is given a role so that the body operates the way it was intended. We all know from experience how we are affected when our body is sick or hurt. When part of our physical body is not working properly, it affects all other parts, and we're not able to function the same way. And in the same way, when the body of Messiah is sick, when its members are hurting, when we are not doing what God has called us, we become less effective in the world, and often we bring, we bring damage to Messiah's name. When we as individuals are working together with one another, each using the gifts that God has given us, God is glorified, and the world is changed around us. And we advance the kingdom of heaven here on earth. We see then that love for God with one another is the tonic that heals our wounds. And it's the glue that binds us together in Messiah. When we are united in love, we can fully experience the promise in Matthew 19.26. With God, all things are possible. A while back, I was talking with our, our rabbi and pondering why in the early church, described in Acts, saw and participated in great miracles that we don't see today. The miracles we hear about and see are very few and far between. Could it be that these believers were just so in tuned to God and each other and connected spiritually that they acted as a conduit for God's power here on earth? Whether it was this or whether it was merely a manifestation of God's power for that particular time, the scripture does tell us that they were all of one accord. They were in perfect unity. They cared for each other's needs and their numbers grew and the gospel was spread throughout the land. In contrast, today we see the body of Messiah is splintered. So many denominations with different statements of faith and doctrinal positions. So much so that some will not even take communion with each other, with someone from a different con congregation. Each denomination has their own outreach programs for evangelism, feeding the poor, caring for widows and orphans, etc. And these are all wonderful things. But what would happen if those barriers were broken down and the entire body of believers actually started 
acting as functioning as one body in Messiah. Just as in the first century, the persecuted church flourishes and flourished and still flourishes today in China, India, and Africa. And I have to say, is, is uh, Jared here today? Last year, I think some of us, you were with us, when we went to the persecuted church conference last year, I was just amazed at the joy that those persecuted believers had. They were tr- it was just truly amazing. Just despite the beatings and the persecution, spending numerous years in prison away from their families, they counted it joy to be persecuted for the name of Christ. Just as we read in scripture, the apostles did as well. So we may never see that level of unity in the worldwide body, but that can't stop us from living and working and growing where God has placed us. And right, right now, this is where God has placed our family. Our focus must be on relationship with God and man. It starts with each one of us individually letting God fit us together in Messiah's body. This is described beautifully in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Messiah from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So each individual part, each one of us, working according to God's purpose and plan. And if we go back to 1 Corinthians 12, we see that all parts of the body are needed, even the ones that seem to be insignificant. And I'd like to take a detour here and examine a topic which emphasizes the importance of the body from an anatomical perspective. This topic has long been a classic argument for Darwinian evolution. That is, vestigial organs. Anyone know what that means? I'm sure Dave does. You do. Okay. These are organs that are believed to be left over from the evolutionary process and are no longer needed in the body. And Darwin claimed that there were about 12 of these organs, and that includes our wisdom teeth and even our appendix. In 1893, the German anatomist Robert Wiedersheim expanded Darwin's list to 86 organs. This list included the parathyroid, the pineal and pituitary glands, as well as the thiamus, tonsils, adenoids, appendix, third molars, and even valves and veins. Hmm. Amazing, huh? But all of these organs have subsequently been shown that they are, they're all needed. And some of them are very vital to the functioning of our life. And what's even scary is some of this stuff is still taught in some of our schools today. So we see then that no part is too small. 
to, be, to not be necessary for the complete functioning of the body. This is so true in the body of Messiah, isn't it? Each member is important and vital to the functioning of the whole, God's church and Messiah's bride. Through this body, God continues to keep his covenant and desires relationship with each one of us. That's a common theme that we keep coming back to. He covenants with his people, his children, not denominations. He made a covenant with Abraham, and through him all the nations of the world are blessed. He made a covenant with us through Yeshua's life, death, and resurrection, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We covenant with one another as we come together each week to worship and to praise God. Covenant means walking together, being there for one another, sharing the bonds of our faith in God, being diligent to preserve the unity of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is who of all, who is over all, through all, and in you all. A few years ago, there was a young man, a minister from Cyprus that we went to hear preach. And his message called for revival in Colorado. And he challenged us to heed God's call as sons and daughters to live out our lives for him in this dark world. And he gave a couple of verses that I think really drive this home. First is Ephesians 5, 7, and 9. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And then in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will approve yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the days of Messiah I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So we see that just as Abraham was called to go forth out of his father's house in the pagan culture that he lived in that day, so too we are called out of spiritual darkness and into his glorious light. We are called children of light. By Yeshua's sacrifice, we have been adopted as sons and daughters of light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So I want to challenge us to commit today to be that light, to covenant with each other through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and to let our light shine before men that they will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And may God bless the reading of his word, and may God continue to bless this congregation as we live out our lives for him 
as part of Messiah's body. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we just give you praise and glory and honor. We thank you, Father, for, for being our Father, being a Father to the fatherless. Father, for giving us the vision of what you want us to be as your bride and giving us that ability through Yeshua. I pray, God, that you will strengthen the bonds that are in this, in this, in this family, that through our love for each other, through our covenanting with one another, that your word will mightily go forth into our community, that we will be that light on a hill, that will bring glory and honor to you. We pray all these things in Yeshua's holy name, amen.